even though we commented on some of these verses last time, let's begin reading verse 14, and then I'll read through verse 28, and we will come back and comment beginning around verse 21. Verse 21 of the chapter. But uh, verse 14, Joshua said, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served who were beyond the river and the gods of the, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us, up, brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way which we went and among the peoples through, whom, uh, through whose midst we had passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey His voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us. For it has heard all the words which, which he spoke to us Thus it shall be a witness against us that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people each to his inheritance. Okay. Now, in these verses we pointed out last time that you see the word serve repeatedly. The people are called to serve the Lord. They are called not to serve foreign gods. We also see that that term serve was used in verse 17 to speak of Egypt as the house of bondage or the house of slavery. It's the same Hebrew word translated bondage or slavery as serve. So instead of serving the Egyptians being oppressed and mistreated, they are serving a God 
who loves them and cares for them. A contrast between service to God and service uh, to the Egyptians. But there are a couple of times that he talks about the people as witnesses. Now, the term witness, where have we seen the term witness in the book before? Do you remember? When they set up the altar. The altar was a witness between them and uh, God. Or, or between one set of the people, the nine and a half tribes, and the other two and a half. Or, and so it was a witness. And you read that language back in 22, verse 34, maybe other verses. You see the term witness used here. And who serves as witnesses in this particular text in Joshua 24? The stone does in verse 27. The people do in verse 22, in 24-22. And then the stone serves as a witness. Now, one of the things that was significant about this is usually when nations made treaties or entered into covenants like this, what happened in those circumstances is is several of the gods were called as witnesses to these treaties. But what you see here is he has just told them, he's in context telling them, put away these foreign gods. He's not going to call any foreign god as witness in this case. So the people are going to be witnesses that they have agreed wholeheartedly to enter this covenant. And a stone is going to be a witness. This stone is going to be a witness. Now, Paul asked the question about where are cases that you see stones serving as witnesses or something like that in the Old Testament. Did you think of any cases of that? Jacob at uh, Bethel. Okay, Jacob at Bethel, he he had a pillow, uh, a stone as a pillow, which is mentioned in one of our songs, and uh, he pours oil on it the next day and said, surely this is the Lord's house. For the Lord was here, I did not know it, and surely this will be the house of the Lord. And he names it Bethel, which, which means house of the Lord, house of God. And uh, that was in Genesis 28, about verses 16 through 22. Uh, can you think of any other case, David? Well, they had this on the cross to Jordan. Uh, yeah, when the waters were parted. It was okay. They took stones, you know, 12 stones from the middle of the river and placed them on the other side. There's no book where we see this idea more than the book of Joshua, is it? In the book of Joshua shows us, and David mentions Joshua 4, uh, verses 1 through 9, about that. And just think about all the times that's happened in this book. Where else has it happened in the book besides? That's the most memorable, I think, those 12 stones. But where are some other times? Okay, pile of stones over Achan in Joshua 7. In verse 26. And then you have that with the other, some of the other kings you know, who died. Uh, Joshua 8, Joshua 10. I don't remember if it's stated exactly the same way. But um, any other things that you remember? 
Samuel had uh, the Ebenezer. Okay, he set up the stone Ebenezer, uh, which uh, means um, stone of hell. And he says, Hither by thy help I have come. In 1 Samuel 7 and verse 12 in context. So, yeah, very, very good. Those are some good examples of that. Joshua keeps seeming like he's trying to talk them out of it. The people keep affirming we will obey the Lord. But, but I don't think we know he is not trying to talk them out of it. He is trying to realize, help them to realize the seriousness of this responsibility. Now, it is interesting that, first of all, he calls them to put away their foreign gods. And it's not stated specifically the people obeyed. I hope they did. But it's not stated specifically. We do have a case like this in Genesis 35. If you look in Genesis chapter 35. In verse 2. Jacob said to his household. To all who were with him. Put away the foreign gods which are among you. And purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress. And has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods which they had. And the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So they put away their foreign gods. They bury them in the ground under this oak that is in Shechem. Well, is this the same oak in Joshua chapter uh, 24? It may be. I don't know how long oak trees live, uh, this would now be, uh, in the very shortest of terms, about four or five hundred years. Uh, but you know, olive trees, I found out over the years, live a thousand years or more. I, I just don't, I don't know. But anyway, whether it be the same oak or not, this is an indication that it's the same kind of experience that Jacob had. As the people, as Jacob told the people to put away their gods, they put away their gods under the oak that's in Shechem. Here Joshua calls them to put away their gods, but then he writes the words of the book of the law of God. Maybe the things that they've done happen right here in Joshua 24. Maybe things in the book at large, and he buries them under this oak that was by the sanctuary of God. And Joshua says then in verse 27, This stone will be a witness against us, for it's heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us, thus it shall be a witness against us, so that you do not deny your God. Now, anything there that I left that I should have commented upon... What thoughts? Anything you have a question about? Sarah? Whenever I think of stones being witnesses, I always think of the triumphal entrance 
and you should rebuke him. And, and, and he says, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. And yes. so the idea that this stone is like ready to cry out as a witness yeah. against the people or yes. for the people, depending, you know, is of their faithfulness. Kind of yeah. Connection. Yes. It's Luke's gospel that mentions this. Luke 19, round verse 38 to 40. But yes, I like that statement. The stones would cry out. And that, and that is a good parallel. That's something I hadn't thought of. So it's very good. Very good thought. And David, Jesus also said, you know, that these stones could be used to make children of Abraham when the Jews were Yes, that's right. Matthew 3. In verse 9, um, Matthew 3, verse 8, 9, God can raise up stones to the children of Abraham. And uh, maybe, maybe we could just have a sermon every time stones are mentioned in the Bible. I, I think I've told you once that, at least once, that I preached a lesson on Joshua that I was really excited about years ago. This is 20-something years ago. What do these stones mean? And just started from those 12 stones at Gilgal and the stones over Achan. The, the things that we've mentioned going all through the book. And I thought, that is such an inventive title. That is such a good lesson. It didn't go over too well. But <laughs> that is often the life of a preacher, nonetheless. So, um, but, uh, but anything else that you can think of? <clears throat> Okay, let's see how the book ends. To me, this is striking. In verse 29, it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim on the north of Mount Gaash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and who had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had brought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Jacob, Joseph's sons. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah of Phinehas, his son, uh, which he gave him in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, the book of Joshua ends with three burials. One is the burial of Joshua himself in verses 24 through 29 or 29 through 31. Then the burial of Joseph who has died so many years ago and we'll talk about his bones in just a moment. And then the burial of of Eliezer. But the Bible tells us Joshua, and what is the significance, and Paul asked about this, what's the significance of Joshua being described as a servant of the Lord? Same as Moses. Yeah, Moses has been described as the servant of the Lord. 
over and over from the very first verses of Joshua 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Arise and go. And Moses has been called the servant of the Lord. At some point, I've given you a number there. I can't remember how frequently in the book. But this is the first time that Joshua has been said to be a servant. Now, this is the same root word which has been translated serve so many times throughout the book. Joshua is a servant of the Lord. And so many times throughout Joshua 24. And the question that Sarah asked the other night, a very good question, is there something about this word that, that means Israel couldn't serve the Lord? And you see, Joshua served the Lord. The text says that. His house served the Lord. And all that generation served the Lord. So, uh, obviously, it's not the word itself. It's just a warning to try to caution them to remain faithful. So, Joshua, the servant of the Lord, died. And how old is he when he dies? 110. 110. couple of things significant about those that time frame. What would be interesting about the lifespan of Joshua? He, well, he was he was a slave in Egypt. Okay. And then he spent 40 years with the rest of them. Okay. And then he had a leadership position and a vigorous life into his 80s, we know for sure. Yeah. Um, so he had like seen the whole, whole deal okay. like that. How much he has seen, how much he has known, and all of that that Sarah says is important and is significant. I, I was particularly, and I realized I, I asked the question pretty broadly, uh, that particular number though I'm hitting at, David, did you have something um. or... Joseph was 110 as well. You read that in Genesis 50, verse 22. He was 110 when he died. How old was Moses when he died? 120. 120 in Deuteronomy 34 and verse 7. And that might indicate, that may be significant. Joshua was a great leader. He wasn't all that Moses was. And maybe, maybe, not for sure, that's indicated by their lifespan. But there is a connection between Joshua and Joseph, which the next verse only highlights when it tells us they took the bones of Joseph and they buried them in the promised land. Now, what is the story behind Joseph's bones? What's the story behind them? Well, he didn't want to be buried in Egypt. Okay. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt. His dying request was that they take him out and bury him in the land of Canaan. There's one other reference. After Joseph said that, before this time, there's one other reference to that. Did you, did you remember the reference? David, you see? Yeah, when... The Israelites left yeah. after the last plague. It specifically says they took the bones of Joseph. Okay. 
Exodus 13, 19, they took the bones of Joseph with them. Now I find that interesting. All that they forget, but they remember that. Now they should have remembered that, not, not, not mocking that, but it is amazing that they did remember that in light of so many other things. Because, but Joseph said, take my bones up from here. I believe that was when Hebrews 11, verses 21 and 22, talks about the lives of Jacob and Joseph. It mentions things about their death and what they said. And the reason that was so important is because they are expressing at their death a full conviction that God is going to give them the life. <laughs> Faith is the substance, Hebrews 11 says, of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And Jacob and Joseph demonstrate that kind of faith by hoping for what they don't see yet. Now, we have already made references to Joseph in, um, or made reference to Jacob when we talked about Genesis 24, or, or G Joshua 24, Verses 23 through 26, and we compared that to Genesis 35. So we've already made comparisons between the experience of Joshua and the days of Jacob. And now we see a connection with the days of Joseph. I think this is more than just insignificant detail. This is telling us the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still alive and well. He is keeping His promises. He is doing what He said. And the people, uh, the people are seeing the fruition of those promises that were made to those leaders. So they uh, have the burial of, of Joshua, the burial of Joseph, the, the burial of Eliezer, who is the priest. The son of Aaron. Here it is interesting that the Septuagint, the Greek translation, adds a couple of things that are not in the Hebrew text. It says, on that day the Israelites took the ark of God and carried it by themselves. Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, had the priesthood in place of his father until he died. And then it talks about his burial. So those are words not in the Hebrew text, but they were in uh, the Greek, the, the oldest Greek translation of that Hebrew text, which is interesting. Did you remember that the book of Joshua begins with death? It begins with death. It ends with death. This is the first words of Joshua. It came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant. He's called Moses' servant at the beginning. He's called the Lord's servant at the end. And the Lord says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Arise and cross the Jordan to this people. Go to the land which I am giving you to inherit. The book begins with death. It ends with death. I do think, and this is one of the reasons we tied in Hebrews 4. I do think it is very significant that they have gotten this promised land. 
the land that Jacob and Joseph longed for and spoke of even on their deathbed. They've gotten this land. And now after they've gotten this land and Joshua warns them, the book ends with three funerals. That is a reminder that nothing here lasts forever. I was going through a place once preaching and, and uh, I was being shown around town and, and this usually does not catch my eye like it did this day, but there was, it was a small town, it was a driving by a hill, it was a beautiful setting and it was a house on a hill that was just breathtaking. The setting, the house, everything was just breathtaking. And I can remember for a moment the thought passing my mind. Oh, that would be a great place to live. And I don't know, another person must have seen me looking at that. I don't know uh, if they had an idea of what I was thinking and were trying to send a message or if they were just giving me information. But they said, you know, there's an interesting story behind that house you were looking at. A person had saved their whole life and uh, they had that house built and it wasn't six months after they moved into that house that they had such an aggressive form of cancer, they only lived a short time afterwards. I kind of get that feel when I read the end of Joshua. That here's the promised land, and we've got the promised land. We bury our leader Joshua and bury the high priest Eliezer and bury the bones of Joseph. And we pointed out, and I ask you to think about in songs in particular, how many songs compare Canaan to heaven. And, and, and I hope some of you came up with some things. But before we get to the songs, before we get to the songs, is that a biblical comparison? Are writers, when they do that, just making that up out of their own mind? Or is there a biblical precedent for looking at this promised land of Canaan as somehow a foreshadowing of a promised land of heaven? And that's where I think Hebrews 3 comes in. Hebrews 3 and 4, if you turn here. Now, I hope if you want this, um, you're welcome to take a quick picture of it. I don't know if there's anything that I've written down there that's particularly profound that you couldn't get on your own, but I may need this board for some of these points that we're about to make. Let me just read the text first and give you a second to jot that down. But, but the passage this is going to be built on is Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. It is quoted here in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. It's quoted and it will be referred to repeatedly throughout the text. 
But let's just see how much we can read of it. He is going to intersperse, as Hebrews does, intersperse an Old Testament quotation with exhortation and, and go back and forth. But the text says in verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Old Testament introduced, Old Testament quote introduced, with this is what the Holy Spirit says. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when, your father, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers test, uh, tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, that word rest is going to become a key passage, a key word throughout this section. It's used in verse 11. It's used in verse 18. In chapter 4, it's used in verse 1, verse 3 twice. It's used in verse 5. It's used in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. The word rest, I think, is used about 11 times right there. One of those times, 4 verse 9, Hebrews 4 9, is a different Greek word. It is a Greek word used only in this verse. Translated Sabbath rest. It's a different Greek word. But every other time, it's the same word. Enter into rest. Now that's a key idea. Enter into rest. And that's from Psalm 95. And he says, take care. Verse 12, take care, brethren. There not be in any of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. So that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now Paul pointed out that the word hardened is used a lot as well. It's used in verse 8, verse 13, verse 15. And what are we to do? lest we be hardened. Well, one, we're to take care that there not be in us an evil, unbelieving heart. Then, we are to encourage each other daily so they will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 14, For we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear His voice... Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For when, for who provoked him when they heard? Indeed did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into rest, but to those who were disobedient? And we see that they did not enter in because of unbelief. Now, do all of your translations, I don't know if the King James does, does this, do all of your translations have a different word 
in verse 18 and verse 19. In verse 18 is disobedience. I think it's. I think I'm getting the order right. Verse 18 mm-hmm. refer to the disobedient, and then verse 19, unbelief. unbelief. Do all of your translations have that? Yes. I think. The older King James may have translated both unbelief. But there's a two different Greek words. Two different Greek words. But I do think you see something here. And this is not alone here in Scripture. That to not believe, to not obey is to not believe. You see that same kind of contrast. Again, it's not in the King James, but two different Greek words in John 3.36 The one who believes in the Son has life. The one who does not obey the Son shall not see life. If we don't obey in biblical terms, we don't believe. And they fell short because they were disobedient or because they did not believe. And look how many times that's going to come back up in this next section. Now, I particularly want you to highlight the argument that he makes from rest because because you may not know why are we reading this passage uh, in a class on Joshua. But, But particularly notice what he says about rest and think about it chronologically. Okay, verse, there's practical exhortation blended in. He uses the example of Israel falling in the wilderness. And then he says in 4.1, Therefore let us fear. If a promise remains of entering his rest, and any of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have heard the good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word did not profit them, because it was not united by faith, in those who heard it. In other words, they were guilty of unbelief. In verse 3, the text says, For he who believed it, he who has who ha- we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter in because of disobedience, verse 7, he again fixes a certain day, Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he has said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from all his works as God did from his. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no no one will fall following the same example of disobedience. So let us fear, 
Lest a promise be given to us and any come short of it, let us be diligent so no one falls short. But, but what I am particularly interested in right now is this concept of rest. Now, first of all, where does it appear first in the Bible? So it's mentioned right here in Hebrews 4. But where? Genesis 2. Okay, Genesis 2. God rested. We'll put 1 through 3. God rested from all his labor. Now, that same kind of language is used in creation to talk about creation in Exodus 20 verse 11 in Exodus 31 verse 17. God rested. And sin curses the world. And man is told that he will work. And he will work by the sweat of his brow. And often his work will be unproductive and unfruitful. And woman is told in pain she will bear children. In a sin-cursed world, God had promised rest and invited us to share in that rest. And man never lost sight of that hope for rest. Noah's name in Hebrew is very similar to the word for rest. And when he is born in Genesis 5.29, he's called Noah, for this one will give us rest from our labors. But rest is particularly tied with several concepts. We'll come back to that in a moment. But God offers the people rest. And a big step of that rest was going to be the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan. And we see in Joshua 21 verse 43, in Joshua 22.4, in Joshua 23.1, the Bible describes the people being given rest in the land. The promise is given in Joshua 1.13, but, but in these passages, it is viewed as a reality. Now, what happened to the generation uh, that came out of Egypt and in the land of Canaan? What, what, what happened to them? Died in the wilderness. Okay, they died in the wilderness. God says, they will not enter my rest. But, God says that in chapter 3, um, Verses 7 to 11 that we've already quoted, and particularly you see it's fulfilled in that wilderness generation that was disobedient and guilty of unbelief. But Joshua in 4:8 gives the people rest. He gives the people rest. But now here's a question that is an obvious question, but I'm not trying to trick you here. I'm not trying to trick you. Who comes first biblically? Joshua or David? Joshua. Joshua. Yes. After this rest, David in Psalm 95 spoke of another rest. And the text is saying in verses 7 and 8, 
that David said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And he, and he particularly focuses on that today. If Joshua had given them rest, if this was the ultimate rest promised God's people, I'm not denying this was a step. This was a very important step. But if that had been the ultimate rest, you don't have, we wouldn't have David coming along saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. They didn't enter that rest. And he's holding out a promise of rest. And I think when the Bible says there remains a Sabbath rest, for the people of God. It uses that picture of the Sabbath, which God has said in the beginning to sanctify the seventh day and to make it holy by resting and creation. But that foreshadowed the ultimate rest of heaven. I do think this is a passage that definitely gives us a biblical basis for that comparison between the promised land of Canaan and the promised land of heaven. Now, what are some psalms? Now, first of all, let me ask you. I may be overlooking something. But I don't know that there's another New Testament passage that makes it this clear. 1 Corinthians 10 is discussing the same kind of things, but it doesn't make the explicit connection between Canaan and heaven. But it discusses a lot of the same ideas. Now, I think a lot of this imagery is here in the New Testament. For example, when John the Baptist comes, he is around the Jordan River. And he's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's almost like he's promising a new promised land. John the Baptist. So I think this imagery is all over the New Testament. But what are some songs you all particularly thought of that tie Canaan to heaven? Uh, Deborah? To Canaan's land, I'm on my way. Where the soul of man never dies. And I think I look back at that. It was only the first verse that I specifically remember that uses that Canaan imagery. But, 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 but yes, that is, that is a good one. That's one of the first ones I thought of. But anyway, because it's the first few words. The Canaan is like, and I'm on my way. But again, here's a biblical precedent for that. Sarah, I saw your hand. See, one that um, I found when I was looking is there is a land of pure delight there is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. Sweet fields beyond the swelling flood stand dressed in living green. So to the Jews old Canaan stood while Jordan rolled between. Their everlasting spring abides and never withering flowers. Death like a narrow sea divides this heavenly land from ours. But timid mortals start and shrink to cross this narrow sea and linger shivering on the brink and fear to launch away. Oh, could we make our doubts remove those gloomy thoughts that rise 
and see the Canaan that we love with unbeclouded eyes. Could we but climb where Moses stood and view the landscape war, not Jordan's stream nor death, death's cold flood should fright us from the shore. Okay. I am not familiar with that song at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote it in 1707, but it's not one that, that okay. shows up a lot. <laughs> Isaac Watts, what a, what a songwriter he was. Uh, but thank you for that. Thank What's you the name of that song? There is a land of pure delight. A land of pure delight. I have to look that one up. And that is in our book. Oh, I thought you said, okay, okay. It's Psalms, he owns spiritual songs. Yeah, it's in Fast, number 750. How dare you sneak in another book? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to sneak in another book, too. Okay. <laughs> I thought Bob came first. <laughs> Thank you. Bob, you had uh, a... Well, I, I, can't, I can't rattle off verses. We don't sing that much, but on Jordan's Stormy Banks. On oh, Jordan's Stormy Banks, I stand and cast a wishful eye. The Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Now, if David doesn't say this without, because Sarah's particularly hit this note with me. Okay. Two things. Tagging on to what Bob just said. Those same words are in another song in the Blue Songbook. I'm bound for the promised land. Yes. I am bound for the promised land. Okay. I didn't know that they listen. But the same words. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And the one from another book out of the old Sacred Selections. You know, I'm camping toward Canaan's happy yeah, land. Yes. I think that was 396. But okay. Don't hold me to it. It's been a long time since we used to say. I know. I know. Sacred selection. I used to. I know. Every time I hear we have an anchor, I think 495. Oh, <laughs> but it's 496. <laughs> yes. They could get that. Yeah. But but Sarah also led me to this. This all. How about this one? Till from Mount Pisgah's lofty heights, I view my home and take my flight. And that's from what song? Sweet Hour. Sweet Hour Prayer. And in Sweet Hour Prayer, he's comparing Moses viewing the promised land to us viewing the promised land. Phil, you had your hand up as well. Yeah, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Oh, yes. Full of wilderness imagery. Go ahead. You want me to read the words? If you want to, okay. the, the part that deals with Canaan is well, yeah, the, third, the third verse, when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Okay, very good, very good. And I am sure we got many other. Sarah's coming up. I was going to say, um, through the night of doubt and sorrow, there's a, a reference to, Mark, uh, onward goes the pilgrim band singing songs of expectation. Marching to the promised land. It doesn't say Canaan specifically. Yes. Forever with the Lord has a reference to the bright end. Uh, then my spirit faints to reach the land I love, the bright inheritance of saints, Jerusalem above. Beulah land, which I know we've talked about before. Mm, yes. Hilltops of glory. Yes. Uh, whenever I was looking through this section, um, the heaven section in this book, I kept being struck by words like promise, promised land, inheritance, inheritance of the Yes, land. yes. All of those words which kind of just fit together with the whole. I'm glad you said that too, because I do think, like in First Peter, there are other passages that convey the idea 
maybe not as directly as Hebrews 4, that the Canaan is a picture of heaven, but like the Bible talks about our inheritance in heaven in 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, which inheritance is somehow connected to the inheritance in Canaan. That, those are very good. It, it, we may continue that on Wednesday. This is what we want to do Wednesday night. We may, we may come back to start here and just talk about stages in this rest, but, but ultimately that, that heaven is the rest. Uh, if we had time, I would also like to do this. Some people will take the archaeology, uh, what archaeology has discovered, and they will conclude Joshua just doesn't fit historically with this. But there are several points at which archaeology does support the thoughts of Joshua. And particularly want to do that with the city of Jericho if we get time. So we want to talk about this concept of rest. And uh, Paul has done a good job with the questions. You don't have to worry about the questions there. Uh, I, I, after we finish this thing on rest, I may send this out to you all. I don't know if I want to send it to you before I preach, preach it, teach it. Uh, but, um, but, but be thinking some more about songs. Anything else as we close? I, but I do appreciate y'all's thoughts. Very good. And uh, God bless.